Boston University School of Law, recognized for excellence in legal education since 1872. It's the faculty. It's the students. It's the curriculum. It's the inspiration. Preparing students for the real-world practice of law today. Join host Dan Ray, BU Law alum and WBC 1030 radio host in Boston for this edition of the BU Law Podcast. Well, welcome to this edition of the Boston University School of Law podcast. I'm Dan Ray, your host tonight. I'm also a proud graduate of Boston University Law School. I'm not going to tell you when. It was a long time ago. I'm a member of the bar here in Massachusetts and have worked uh, for many, many years in Boston uh, as a broadcaster, both for WBZ TV, the CBS affiliate here in Boston, and WBZ Radio in Boston. And as a reporter for 31 years, I covered countless cases in local uh, state and federal courtrooms, and I also now host and have hosted since 2007 a, um, a call-in show, a, a weekly, uh, nightly call-in show, I should say, Monday through Friday on WBZ Radio 1030, which you can listen to uh, wherever you are in the country on WBZ.com. We broadcast that uh, every night, Monday through Friday from 8 to 12, 8 to midnight, East Coast time. And joining me today, I'm delighted to uh, introduce and welcome uh, Professor uh, Susan Akram. Uh, she's a clinical professor of law at Boston. University. Professor Akram was born and raised in Lahore, Pakistan, and her early exposure to the plight of refugees uh, stirred her into a legal career uh, involved in immigration and refugee law. Professor Akram was a, is a Fulbright scholar, and she teaches civil litigation in the civil litigation clinic at BU Law School, where she supervises law students in their representation of clients in immigration and refugee cases. She also teaches other courses, such as immigration law, comparative refugee law, and international human rights law. Uh, welcome to, uh, to the podcast, Professor Akram. How are you today? Thank you, Dan. Uh, very How? well. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Uh, what is the genesis of your interest uh, in getting involved in this whole issue that has not only uh, national implications, but international implications in immigration and refugee law? Well, the interest for me stemmed from my childhood. Uh, my grandparents were forced to leave uh, their ancestral home in India in the 1947 partition of India and Pakistan. Uh, they moved from East to West Punjab in what was probably the largest human migration of modern times. Uh, several million people crossed from one side to the other, and over 100,000 lost their lives in that conflict. Uh, my father's family were fortunate to get a house for the family, but I grew up in the aftermath of the uh, trauma, really extreme trauma, that marked not just my family, but millions who suffered so much from that partition. And I went to law school knowing that I wanted to use my law degree in some way that would draw on that particular experience, my experience growing up in Pakistan, living through two wars and having a foot in East and West. And I began volunteering with refugee organizations in San Francisco, where I first began practicing and uh, found my calling. And I was given the chance to start the public council immigration project there. And I never looked back. You know, um, we use the word immigrant and we use the word refugees. And, and sometimes I think we inter-exchange those words, but uh, they they are words that have different meanings. Uh, but there are common issues uh, from a legal perspective that affect both immigrants uh, and refugees. Could you ex expound on that a little bit? Well, there are really two areas of law that cover immigrants and refugees, uh, the domestic U.S. immigration law and the international treaty law, primarily the 1951 Refugee Convention and 1967 Protocol that govern U.S. particular obligations towards refugees, sort of a subset of the immigrant population. 
And the common issues that cover the two areas are the blend of international and domestic law that governs refugees and asylum seekers, their rights and the process by which their rights are governed, the issues of detention and removal, and the intersection of law and politics that has really a huge bearing on practice in this area. Presently, you actually oversee students uh, that are handling uh, refugee and asylum cases, as well as uh, domestic and international related asylum, refugee and human rights work. I guess you have 20 students in the asylum and uh, human rights area uh, in the civil clinic. What type of cases are these students at Boston University Law School presently involved in? Uh Well, uh, students have actually been able to work on immigration and political asylum cases as part of the BU civil litigation program since about 1995, along with the other four areas of law that are handled in the civil clinic. Uh, And then two years ago, my colleague in the clinic, Judith Diamond, and I set up uh, an asylum and human rights or AHR group in the clinic And this has become extremely popular. We've just hired a third supervisor for this year and now are expanding to 20 students in the fall and spring. Uh, The work we do isn't any longer strictly immigration and asylum, but includes a wide range of domestic and international related refugee and human rights work, um, including immigration and domestic violence cases, trafficking related cases, domestic and international refugee representation and advocacy, special immigrant juvenile cases, cases of enforced disappearance, um, and habeas claims relating to immigration detention conditions and release from detention. So we really cover a very broad range of what you might call humanitarian and human rights and, of course, immigration work. And sometimes you get into some areas that maybe are a little more controversial than others, as I understand that uh, some of the Boston University Law School students have worked on, actually co-counseled on some of the Guantanamo cases. Well, yes, that's right. We don't shy away from controversy. Uh, I mean, uh, from most perspectives, if you do human rights work, you're going to be wading in uh, somewhat controversial waters at some point, uh, or you're not being effective. Uh, My students have actually done research and prepared memos and worked on amicus briefs for a number of the Guantanamo lawyers, including the Chinese Uyghur cases, and the Algerian-Bosnian cases. Um, Examples of some of the cases my students are currently working on uh, are that of a young boy who was sent to the U.S. uh, with smugglers at uh, seven years old to escape a kidnap attempt by gang members in his country. He's now living with relatives in the Boston area. A young man who was conscripted in his country and denied medication and brutally punished for suffering epileptic seizures. We have another case of a young woman who was threatened by human traffickers when she refused to help them and then killed her father and her fiancé before she managed to escape. Uh, We have another, a habeas corpus action in the case of a a stateless man who was held for seven months beyond the statutory post-removal period when the government had been unable to remove him to any country but was letting him languish um, indefinitely in detention. Uh, So these are just... uh, a bit of a snapshot of the sorts of work that my students are doing. You know, the Uyghur cases were one uh, that I got involved in a little bit, not as a lawyer, but as a as a journalist. Uh, I know some of the Uyghurs uh, were able to get to Bermuda. Yeah. Uh, and I think some of them uh, were sent to the, is it the island of Palau, I That's believe, right. in the South That's Pacific. Right. 
Have all of those Uyghur cases, to the best of your knowledge, been resolved? I mean, when I heard the word the Uyghurs, I was thinking about like maybe like a Pete Seeger and a backup group or something. Pete Seeger and the Uyghurs uh, wasn't quite like that. <laughs> are any of the Uyghurs still left at Guantanamo as far yes, as you know? Yes, there are. There are. And uh, the last round of the Uyghur cases, they're still uh, languishing through the court system. Uh, I just got a note from one of the lawyers that they're looking for uh, additional help on yet another round of uh, of amicus briefs. So we may well get involved with that. But no, those cases are not all resolved at this point. You were a founding member uh, of, of a project called the uh, PAIR Project, P-A-I-R, uh, which helps people get political asylum in this country. I mean, one of the ways you actually can legally immigrate to this country is if uh, you get here and and claim that uh, you could have you could be prosecuted uh, politically um, back in your home country. Um, what can you tell us uh, about some of those cases where people come here and are able to secure political asylum? Yes, we actually do um, do a lot of political asylum cases. They're a good part of our docket. Uh, although we're expanding beyond them. But uh, the Political Asylum Immigration Representation, or PAIR project, is the second project of its kind that I was fortunate enough to be involved in getting off the ground. Um, it was modeled on the Immigration Project of Public Council in Los Angeles, um, where I was founding director. And these projects are based on uh, the model of partnering private law firms with public interest programs to expand available legal services in the immigration and particularly the political asylum area, where the need is greatest and resources are fewest. Um, both the Public Council Immigration Project and the PEAR Project are flourishing uh, now and have cemented this terrific partnership of the public and private bar and they continue to provide much-needed legal representation to indigent refugees and asylum seekers and immigrants. You also um, were the interim director of a program which resettled Iraqi refugees from camps in Saudi Arabia after the first Gulf War, because that was uh, back in uh, 1991. Right. Um, so that's now nearly 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, tell, tell us about that. Uh, well, in 1992-93, I'd been practicing in the area of immigration and refugee law for about 10 years, uh, first as a pro bono lawyer uh, while in private practice, and then as the director of the public council and the pair projects. And I wanted to get some experience in the area of overseas refugee processing. So I took a leave from the PEAR project and went to Saudi Arabia to be the interim director of the U.S. resettlement program for Iraqis after the first Gulf War. And at that time, there were two major camps in Saudi Arabia, um, Rafha and Artawiya. Uh, one had about 33,000 refugees and, and the other had about uh, 10,000 refugees. And over the years of the program, about 25,000 Iraqi refugees were resettled um, from that war in other countries, uh, primarily in Scandinavia and Europe. Um, during the time that I was there, the U.S. resettled about 2,000 of the refugees. Uh, I must say it was a very interesting and intense period of, of my own personal and professional life. Um, but it gave me a really deep understanding of the severe constraints and tensions that mar the refugee resettlement process worldwide. Im immigration, as you know, getting coming back a little closer to home uh, with uh, the Arizona law SB um, 1070, which uh, has been a controversial proposal, um, a hot button issue, if you will. Uh, now is a big legal issue in the country. 
Uh, I realize that this podcast uh, will be available for many months ahead, and at some point uh, that that law will be uh, adjudicated, either a constitutional or unconstitutional. What's your point of view uh, on you know immigration debate as it has evolved uh, in this country, and maybe with specific reference to SB 1070? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's pretty broad consensus that the immigration system in this country is broken, uh, particularly in light of the 11 to 12 million undocumented people that are living and working in the U.S. today. Um, but I think both conservatives... By, by the way, can I, can I just interrupt for a second? Sure. This is a point of uh, personal privilege. I, I know that, that it's often in the law important how issues are framed, but also the characterization of, uh, of issues are important. I know that um, you use the phrase undocumented, uh, and others, uh, including myself, will use the phrase illegal immigrant. Um, I think, again, I don't mean to quarrel with you here, but I think when you and I take a, a trip to Paris and we lose our passport, we're undocumented. Right. I think that someone who has come here with the intention of staying here is more than undocumented. They're actually illegal. Or am I wrong in that characterization? Well, I, I mean, that's it's, it is a, a hotly contested phrase. And those of us who teach in the, immig- in the area of immigration or work in the area of immigration uh, we take issue that any person can be illegal. Um, I mean, the point is that no human being is illegal, uh, that if you don't have particular types of documents, you are undocumented. But the phrase illegal doesn't actually appear anywhere in our immigration law. Uh, the phrase, the, the term alien does, and so we use undocumented alien. Um, but um, I, I, it could be a point of preference, but certainly yeah. immigration teachers don't when use I, when, the term when I think illegal. Of the, when I think of the word alien, of course, I think about E.T., the movie right. E.T. and all of that. So, <laughs> so I'm, anyway, no, I, I don't mean to, to quibble with you, but I always think it's important when, when you get a chance. Uh, so let, let me, since I interrupted your question, let me just get uh, your, your reaction. I would agree with you. The immigration system is, uh, is broken probably was first broken uh, in 1965 and uh, broken again in 1987 and uh, we still haven't come up with a good a good resolution right but i think i was uh, i was saying about the uh, the cons- where is the consensus between conservatives and liberals and i would say both conservatives and liberals are calling for comprehensive immigration reform uh, with conservatives maybe pressing for a more stringent enforcement policy and liberals, on the other hand, are pushing for a legalization program and overhaul of the legal immigration or the or the visa system. But I think it's fair to say that immigration reform to be successful will have to have elements of both of those uh, perspectives. Um, at the same time, there's some very widespread myths that need to be debunked in this dialogue. For example, the evidence doesn't support the claim that undocumented people are here to take public benefits and drain resources. Uh, in fact, the opposite is true. Something like 85% of the undocumented are actually working. Uh, illegal immigrants, uh, undocumented immigrants, are excluded from most federal and state entitlements like subsidized housing or food stamps. And congressional and other serious reports have found that they actually appear to contribute more than they use in services. Uh, in other words, there's a net gain from immigrants and the undocumented because they work and they pay taxes, but they draw very few benefits. But the money they contribute often goes to federal and state coffers 
while the services they benefit from, the few services that there are, such as health and law enforcement, come out of local government budgets. And that's really the essence of the controversy between states such as Arizona and the federal government, with states claiming they're bearing the costs of this dysfunctional federal immigration policy, and the federal coffers are, on the other hand, uh, the only ones to gain. Yeah, you know, when, when we talk about uh, illegal immigrants um, getting benefits in the country or undocumented aliens, um, I, of course, immediately think of the president's aunt over at the housing project right. in South Boston. But we can save that discussion maybe for uh, the, the show Nightside. My guest uh, uh, here on, on this edition of the BU uh, Law uh, Podcast uh, is Professor Susan Akram. And we're going to be back with more questions and comments for Professor Akram right after this quick break. Located in Boston and steeped in 138 years of rich tradition, BU Law is number one in teaching quality according to Leiter Law School rankings and number three in the nation for best professors according to Princeton Review. BU Law, admitting students regardless of race, religion, or gender since 1872 and training them to become leaders in the law. Visit the website and see for yourself at www.bu.edu forward slash law. Now back to the BU Law Podcast with host Dan Ray, a lawyer, a veteran Boston broadcast journalist, and BU Law alum. Well, welcome back to this edition of the Boston University School of Law podcast. I'm Dan Ray. My guest today is Professor Susan Akram. She's a clinical professor of law at Boston University and a global legal expert on human rights and refugee law. She certainly has worked uh, in many uh, spots, hot spots around the world. Uh, another spot that you have worked at um, is uh, Cambodia. You recently returned from Cambodia, where you worked with the Southeast Asian Investigations uh, into Social and Humanitarian Activities. It's an acronym called SISHA. Uh, tell us about this. I understand it was a pro bono trip with students from Boston University Law School, and the concept uh, paper they wrote led to immediate funding for a new project. Yes. Uh, well, a couple of BU law students and I were in Cambodia for two weeks to partner on a women's rights project with SISHA. Uh, this was the first of what we're hoping will be a series of international pro bono trips that allow qualified BU law students to work for a short time with an international non-governmental organization providing legal assistance. Uh, the idea developed out of the domestic pro bono trips that our students have been doing now for quite some time uh, during their spring breaks. And in response to an increased demand for these kinds of international pro bono opportunities, CISHA was founded by a BU alum, Ed Kelly, uh, to engage in anti-child trafficking work in Southeast Asia. Uh, Cambodia has a huge child and youth trafficking and forced prostitution problem, and we were able to develop a project there to do training for young girls and women uh, in the slums of Phnom Penh to raise awareness of the Cambodian laws that protect against exploitation and, and to empower the most impoverished women. Uh, the project was funded almost immediately after we left and will be off the ground shortly. How How is the um, your life's work here really fighting for the rights of refugees and immigrants, um, as we've as we've mentioned in a variety of countries around the world? How has that shaped you as a person or I guess probably has your personhood actually shaped your interest in these issues? 
Kind of a chicken, kind of a chicken and egg question, Patricia. <laughs> well, I, I guess it, it's been a life mission. Uh, I, I don't really see myself as having a separate professional and personal life. It's just what I do. Um, I was really disenchanted with private practice very shortly after I started my professional life. And if I hadn't found this amazing work, I think I would probably have left the practice of law entirely. What do you think you would have done? I'm just curious uh, if, if this, and clearly this, this area uh, is, is not going to go away for a long time. Do you think you would have abandoned uh, the legal field and, and moved into some other area if, if this area of the legal field didn't exist? Oh, well, I, I had for a long time thought I would go back to Pakistan where my family was and um, to do some sort of legal related uh, or human rights related work uh, in the legal profession. In those days, there were not a lot of women lawyers and um, uh, there, there, in the city where I grew up, Lahore uh, is one of the few all-women law firms now with some very high-profile women lawyers. And I, I think I probably would have done something like that. Um, but certainly, going back to Pakistan and working there with this, you know, valuable education that I had was something that uh, that was also appealing to me for quite some time. What sort of advice would you give law students, or for that matter, prospective law students uh, who are in in law school or thinking about going to law school and they're interested in international immigration and refugee law? Well, I think it's more difficult to find a good job in this area, and you have to start very early in law school to develop the kind of academic and practice experience to get yourself in the position to find the jobs that are there. But the jobs are there, and if you work at it, you'll get the one you want. Uh, and I guess I'd say don't be dissuaded by those who push you into private law firm practice if that's not what you want to do. Uh, immigration and refugee law are very uh, uh, growing, expanding fields, and I think they require as talented, skilled, and dedicated lawyers as any other field. Um, and the work is incredibly exciting and fulfilling, uh, and in the end, it's not really about moving money around. It's about saving lives. What can be more exciting than that? Uh, Professor, uh, we have reached the uh, end of our time here uh, this today. Uh, but before we go, uh, any final thoughts? And also, where can listeners go to get more information about your work, about your um, your scholarship and your advocacy? Um, well, my faculty profile at BU Law's website um, that has my full CV and uh, highlights of the work I've done. Uh, for clinic information, people can go to the link to the Asylum and Human Rights and the Civil Litigation Clinics on the BU Law website. They can follow some of the stories of the cases that our students are working on. And unfortunately, I think there's more than enough information about me on Google. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, Some of which is probably true. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Professor, I just want to thank you very much for taking the time today. Professor Susan Akram, uh, a proud faculty member of Boston University School of Law. Thanks for having me with us today. Thank you. And we also want to thank, of course, all of our listeners. Uh, you can find all of the editions of the Boston University School of Law podcast uh, right here in the Legal Talk Network, also at the Boston University School of Law website, as well as on iTunes. Uh, until we uh, next meet, I hope uh, all of you uh, have a great day. And uh, for now, this is Dan Ray of the Legal Talk Network uh, bidding you a, a wonderful day. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the BU Law Podcast with host Dan Ray. Check out what else is happening on campus at bu.edu forward slash law.